Good morning, family. It's always a privilege and an honor to be before you all. Um, two things that I ask that you, uh, that you one, pray for me, and uh, two, just keep me accountable to what I say in this pulpit. I feel like anybody, anytime someone has an opportunity to preach, to, to uh, step in God's pulpit, they should be held accountable uh, to the word of God because they're handling the very words of eternal life. So I just ask that you would keep me accountable uh, this morning. We'll be in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. When you have it, just say amen. I'll give you some time to turn. Amen. You got it, right? Okay, Tony. <laughs> So the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. It reads this way. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that, and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you, gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Let us pray. Gracious God, Father, thank you for this time of the service. Lord, will we come to hear your word. God, this is, we know this is where we meet with you. God, I pray that you will prepare our hearts right now. Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to focus, uh, to be attentive to your word, oh God. Right now and in this moment, there is nothing of greater importance. So I pray, God, that you would just ready us, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord, and that you would just 
Open our hearts, God. Open our minds to receive what you have to say to us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the Jews, uh, they have a legend, sort of like a myth, that when Abraham would start out on his journeys, he saw the stars in heaven, and he said, I will worship the stars. But ere long, the stars had set, and then he saw the constellations, the Pleiades, and the rest of them, and he said, I will worship the constellations. But they too also set. Then Abraham, he saw the moon sailing high in the heavens. But after her season was over, the moon also vanished. It set. Then Abraham, he saw the sun in all its majesty, and he said, I will worship the sun. But as the, at the, after the day was spent, he saw the sun sink on the western horizon. You see stars, constellations, moon, sun, all were unworthy of Abraham's worship. For all had set and all had disappeared. Then Abraham said, I will worship God, for he abides forever. This morning I want to talk to you on the theme of true worship. As humans, we're naturally inclined to worship. We were created for this very purpose. It's built in our DNA. But what is worship? How can we define worship? I love the definition that we find in Scripture that the writer of uh, the book of Hebrews gives us. In chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So true biblical worship must consist of reverence and awe. Not, we can interpret awe as as fear, right? Fear of God. So not fear in the sense of of horror or terror. I'm I'm terrified of rodents. I hate them. So, but we're, we're talking about fear in the sense of respect for God, a deep respect for God. When we encounter God in his word, when we meet with him in his word, in prayer, during our devotional times, uh, even at church when we gather corporately as a church, do we, do we have a sense of, of reverence? Do we, have, do we stand in awe and amazement at all that God is, at all that he has done? We know because of sin we tend to be guilty of worshiping the wrong things. We're guilty of worshiping the creature, the things God has created, rather than worshiping the creator. Now, this is known as idolatry, worshiping other gods. This is clearly forbidden by the first commandment. But we can also be guilty of worshiping the true and living God in a false way. And this is forbidden by the second commandment. The nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, right? They were, they were God's chosen people, and not only did they struggle with idolatry, but they also struggled with worshiping Yahweh in a false way. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see Israel, they were preparing, they were preparing to cross the Jordan to go in and to possess the land that God has so graciously given them. All right, so I'm going to run through a quick outline of Deuteronomy, the first few chapters before chapter 12, so we can have a better understanding of what is going on in chapter 12. 
So in the first three chapters, Moses, he recounts the history of Israel and their relationship with God. He, remind, he reminded them of their last 40 years that they just spent in the wilderness. If you recall the, the story from Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, Israel refused to enter the promised land. Right? God had so graciously provided them with this land, but they refused. They complained. They murmured. So because of their disobedience and their rebellion, God had sent them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation passed away. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we see Moses, he's speaking to a new generation. So he goes on to stress the important principles that Israel should learn from their history that they just spent those, those 40 years. The beginning of chapter 5, we see Moses giving the law. He gives the Ten Commandments. Again, we know that the Ten Commandments, it, it signify God's covenant relationship with his people. He stresses to the Israelites that this is not just a covenant that he was making with their forefathers, but he was letting them know that he's making this covenant with you, with this current generation. These principles were going to govern their life in the promised land. So chapters, the end of chapter 5, going all the way through chapter 11, Moses, he just gives these basic principles and stipulations of what the Israelites should do once they entered the promised land. So now we have at the beginning of chapter 12, Moses, he then moves on to give specific instructions to the public about the public worship of God. So looking at, looking at our text in chapter 12, verse 4, and I believe this is the key verse of this passage. It states this. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Well, what way is he referring to? You have to remember the land, in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, right? They were a people... They had their own religion. They worshiped many different gods, and they worshiped, them. They worshiped their gods in, in a false way. So the Canaanites, they worshiped Baal, which was the male god, and they worshiped Asherah, which was the female god. The dominant theme in Canaanite religion was fertility. In this religion, the worshiper would ascend the mountain and the hill because these particular places were believed to be the home of a god. So by ascending that hill or that mountain, in a sense, it drew them closer to the deity. They built their altars and shrines on the mountains, the hills, under every green tree. Now certain trees symbolized uh, fertility. They, they were considered to be sacred. The Canaanites' worship was known for its sensuality. It included prostitution, it even included human sacrifice. They would offer their children as sacrifices to be burned to their gods. And all of these things, the elements of their worship, was an abomination to the God of Israel. So if Israel was going to enter this promised land, verse 1 tells us that they had to follow the statutes and the rules set by God. So in our text, God gives specific instruction on worshiping his way. The nation of Israel did not determine how they were going to worship God. We as a church, we don't determine how we're going to worship God, but we must worship God his way. But just how does worshiping God's way look? So for the rest of our time, I promise I won't be long, for the rest of our time, we're going to look at a few marks of true worship. How many of us in here remember 
when we, that time when we first became a, a teenager. Some, some wild times, right? Don't you, your teenagers? Don't act like we've been saved like our entire life. I mean, I know I did some things that I, I, don't, even, I, I don't care to speak on right now. But, um, you know, during, during our teenage years, we, we yearn for independence. All right, we want to live our life in a way where, where, where we are our own authority. You know, we, we feel restricted by rules, so, you know, we don't we kind of buck at the rules that our parents have for us. But this, 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 is the, uh, this is the thing. As teenagers, where do we live at? At home with your parents, right, for the, for the most part. So if you're living under someone's roof, right, they are the authority. They have certain rules in place that you must follow. In my home, Right, I, me and, and my lovely wife, we set uh, the rules, and our children, our two children, must live by those rules, right? We bought our house about maybe like nine years ago. During that home buying process, when we, uh, when we closed on it, and you know, we signed the paperwork, our children wasn't there to sign the paperwork, <laughs> right? They, they didn't contribute to the down payment. They, they don't contribute to paying the mortgage now. They don't contribute to the bills in any way. Let me take that back. They do contribute to the bills. They run up, they, they run up my grocery bill, my, my gas and electric. So in that way, they do. But they don't kick out any money to pay the bills. So therefore, they don't have a say on the rules of the house. Me and my wife are the authority, so we have certain rules in place for their, for their good. Right? You know, we, those rules are... Um, in, um, in, in, I'm sorry, those rules are in place for their good. We don't want anything uh, to happen to them. So in the same way, God, he gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites. Right? Israel, they didn't do anything to deserve the land. Right? God just graciously, because he's so good, he, he gave them the land. So therefore, God set the statutes and the rules of the land. So looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. We see here that Israel was prohibited from worshiping God like the other nations uh, worship their gods. Israel was commanded to destroy all the places where the nations worship and to tear down all their objects used in worship. God wanted no trace of the Canaanites' false religion to remain in the land. God knew that even if the objects that the Canaanites used to worship their gods, if just a trace of those objects remained, that Israel would be tempted to turn to, turn to, um, to their gods, and to, to either turn to their gods or to turn and, and, and try to worship God, Yahweh, in the same way that the Canaanites worship their gods. Right, so mark number one, 
is that true worship is determined by God, right? We don't determine how we are going to worship God. They were not to worship God in that way, but rather verse 5 tells us, verse 5 says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Again, if you recall, during Israel wilderness years, the people did not have a permanent central location to worship God. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That's why in verses 8 and 9 of our text, it says this, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to worship, we are not to do, the th- we are not to do things any way we want. When Israel was to enter the promised land, Moses was letting them know, look, things are going to be different. We're not going to be doing the things that we did these last 40 years when we were in the wilderness. In verses 10 through 12, Moses just simply repeats what the Israelites must do when they come to the place that God has chosen for worship. Moses, he stresses to the people that God will have a central place for his name to dwell. Again, true worship is determined by God. So God will have a central place for his name to dwell. And this, is, this brings us to our second mark that we see here of true worship. And that mark is this. True worship is exclusive. How many, how many sports fans in here? You all like sports, right? I know you're a basketball guy. My man. So one of the major, in all major professional sports, right, one of the goals of every athlete it should be a goal, is to make it into the Hall of Fame. Right? You want to be the best of the best. The Hall of Fame is a very exclusive club. Not, not just anybody makes it into the Hall of Fame. So basketball, that's my favorite sport. So in the Basketball Hall of Fame, you see, you hear names like Jordan, Bird, Magic. You know, when LeBron finished playing, he'll be inducted in. You know, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, all of them will be Hall of Famers one day. Now, for all my true sports fans, how many remember the name Cliff Livingston? You, look, nobody remembers him, right? So he used to play for the Chicago Bulls. He was a teammate of Michael Jordan. Didn't really play much. Um, he rode the bench a lot. He was like one of their biggest cheerleaders, you know, when Michael Jordan and then was scoring points. Like, he was a good teammate, but he just didn't play. So if I said Cliff Livingston deserves to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, like you would probably look at me like I was crazy. Like, this, I mean, his resume is not worthy to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. My point is this. The names of those superstars that I mentioned, the Jordans, the Birds, the Magics, they belong to a very exclusive club. Their names are very exclusive in the, the sports world. Right? Among those in sports, in the basketball world, you know, their names may be considered by some as being like basketball gods. Well, brothers and sisters, the name of our God is exclusive. God does not share his attributes or his glory with another. God is unlike anyone in this universe. The writer of Psalms, the psalmist says this in, in Psalms 86, verses uh, 8 through 10, he says this. 
There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Who can we compare God to? No one. His name is exclusive. Right? True worship is exclusive. What I mean is we don't worship other gods, but we worship God and God alone. Again, looking at verse 5 in, in our text, chapter 12, verse 5. The Israelites, they were commanded to seek the place that God would choose to put his name to dwell. As we already stated, there were many gods in Canaan. Once the Israelites destroyed the shrines and the altars of the false gods, there would only be God's place of worship with only his name. Now, this refers to the tabernacle and the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, God's presence was manifested at the temple, right, at the tabernacle. For the Israelites, there would be different central places of worship over time until they settled on Jerusalem. But when they moved to a new place, the tabernacle, the ark, the ark of the covenant would move to the new place. Right? God's presence, again, was manifested at the temple. At the temple was where people could come to, for prayer, right? for supplica- to make their suppl- uh, supplications to God. They could come there and to inquire of God in matters that they needed counsel in. Anything that they needed from God, they could go to the temple. But remember Christ's words to the Samaritan, to the woman at the well. Uh, in John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4, uh, verses 21 through 24, says this. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. For us today, we know, because of the work of Christ, we no longer have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. We're not restricted by by the geographical location of the temple, but rather the key to worshiping God is worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Again, if you, if you remember, so the Old Testament temple, the tabernacle, it represented Christ. Looking at uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can be translated as tabernacle, among us. So in the same way in the Old Testament where God's presence was manifested at the temple, Well, in Christ Jesus, God's presence is manifested among his people in the same way today. And those of us who trust in Christ are said to be God's temple because the Holy Spirit now dwells in us today. And I want us to understand one thing. I want to be very clear with this. I want us to understand this. The principle of God's holiness and the awe that accompanied the worship that was so powerfully demonstrated during those times in the Old Testament. Today, 
that remains unchanged, right? Our God is still a consuming fire. He was back then, he still is today. Worship of Yahweh has always been and will always remain exclusive. We have to be careful of this new age thought that says that, well, you know, you can worship, uh, it doesn't matter who you worship, you know, all religions kind of lead to the same place, right? We have to be very careful because sometimes that, like, that philosophy, that, those, those ideas sometimes find its way into the church. We have to remember that Christianity is not, Christianity is not inclusive, right? How, how many of us have, have ever been um, on an all-inclusive vacation, right? Everything, everything is included, right? It's a lovely thing. I haven't yet. I'm looking forward, but um, I've heard good things. I heard good things about it, but, um, but Christianity is not that way, right? We worship one God. Our worship of God should be exclusive. We don't include other gods. We don't include the God of, of Islam. We don't include the God of, of Hinduism and Buddhism. Jesus, he tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we say our worship of God must be exclusively through Christ. When we say that we believe in Christ, we're basically saying that all we're doing is affirming what Christ has already said about himself. And what has he said about himself? Well, we just read it in John 14 and 6. He says, I am the way. Christ is not one of many ways, but he is the only way to worship God. We worship in and through Christ. Our worship is accepted only through Christ, on his merits, in his person. Another mark we see here is this. True worship consists of giving. True worship consists of giving. I came uh, upon the story. A mother, she wanted to teach her daughter uh, a moral lesson. So they were in church, and um, it came to the time of, of offering so the mother gave her daughter uh, two amounts, a dollar and a quarter. And she told the daughter to you know, put whatever amount that you want to give into the offering plate. The other one you keep for yourself. So after church was over, uh, the mother, she went to her daughter. She asked her, well, what, what amount did you give uh, to the, you know, that you get, um, what amount did you give in church? And the daughter said, well, right as the man in the pulpit said that God loves a cheerful giver. She said, I was thinking about giving a dollar, but I knew that I would be more cheerful in giving giving the quarter. So she gave the quarter. So looking at verses 6 and 7 of our text, it says this, And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the tithes, the vow offerings, the free will offerings were offered to God. Some were offered for forgiveness, while others expressed gratitude to God. 
So giving, therefore, is an important part of worship. And when we give, we don't give grudgingly, but rather our giving should be with joy. The Apostle Paul, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving can be one of the hardest things about Christianity at times, but I think during those times when it's hard, I think we, we have the wrong perspective about God. But giving can also be one of the happiest things about Christianity. We should find great joy in giving. This joy we experience shouldn't be an individual thing. Rather, it should be of a communal nature and a part of the worship life of the people. It should be experienced by other fellow Christians that we are in fellowship with at the local church, meaning here, right here at the garden. If you recall the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, verses 42 uh, through 46, you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there and read. It says this, chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Right, the early church, they were so touched by God's generosity in saving them that they freely gave of everything, of their possessions, of everything, that time they freely gave. They freely gave it to people, to those that were in need. I wonder how many of us remember God's generosity in saving you from all your filth, right? Just think about that. God was generous in saving you. None of us deserve to be saved. If you are, brothers and sisters, would you we should strive to outdo each other in giving, whether that be our finances, whether that be opening our homes right, to those that are in need, whether that be um, visiting those that are sick, that are in the hospital. Right? We don't just have to merely just give our finances, but giving our time, our resources. And I know that as a church, um, we are putting this into practice. Right? I'm always encouraged to hear when I, I find out that, you know, people are opening their homes to people who need a place to stay. Man, um, like before I came to the Garden Church and we've been here for two years, like some of the stuff that like I found out people were doing, that stuff was unheard of in the churches that I, that I went to. But I mean, now and I see, I understand, I'm like, this is what we're called to do. So I'm always encouraged when I see, you know, people um, being a church uh, to one another. Um, I remember, I think this was last year, my daughter, she, um, she had to dance at the Artscape. It was on a Sunday, and right after church, me and my wife, we, we went to the Artscape. We had to get her down there early, you know, so that she can get ready, get prepared to go on the dance. And I remember we were staring out into the lobby of the, uh, the Meyerhoff. She was dancing at the Meyerhoff right in the lobby. 
So we're staring, you know, we're staring out, out the our window lobby, and I just see like a group of, man, it had to be like 30, 40 something people from the church right after service coming to, to support my daughter, like in her, you know, in her dance. Thanks, Tony. Um, I was, man, I was so touched by that because people, like on a Sunday, you know, first thing you want to do is, you know, just go home, you know, chill, maybe take a nap. You know, they, those people that showed up that day, they could have spent that Sunday doing other things, but they sacrificed, right? They sacrificed their time. They gave up that time of themselves to be there. I have been able to see how people are seeking to be the church for one another since I've been here, you know, by, by us, you know, giving, by people giving of themselves uh, for one another. Looking at verses 13 and 14, as we close, I told you I wasn't going to be long. Moses ends by warning the people. He says this in verses 13 and 14. He says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. In our worship of God, we must worship exactly how God has commanded us to worship him. In the history of this world, there has only been one person that has walked the face of this earth that has worshipped God according to his rules, according to his statutes. And he did it perfectly. I think we all know the person I'm referring to is Jesus Christ. That's right, Tony. It's Christ. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Real quick, the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says this. So this, this part of scripture is when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan was trying to tempt him to bow down and to worship him. But remember, we said that one of the marks of worship, of true worship, is that it is determined by God. So l- listen to Jesus' words. He says this. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Can we say that last part together as a church? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So our worship of God True worship is exclusive. We worship God and God alone, right? We don't worship the God of money. We don't worship the God of pornography. We don't worship the God of race. We don't worship the God of of social media. We don't worship these other gods. But Christ says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Another mark that we said, we said that giving was a true mark of worship. Well, no one embodied given more than Christ Jesus. It says this, Jesus gave of himself when he sacrificed his body on the cross for our sins. And remember, he didn't do this grudgingly. 
but he did it with joy. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is the true worshiper of God. And we too worship God when we worship through Christ. Our worship is accepted only through Christ. Right? Jesus submitted his whole life to God, to his Father. In the same way, our life should be one act of continuous worship to God. Right? We don't worship merely here just on Sundays or on Wednesdays or whenever you meet in community group, but rather we're called to worship everywhere we go, whether it be in our home, on our jobs, in our schools. Every single relationship that we have should be one act of continuous worship to God. Worship, it's our purpose. It's the reason why we were created. You know, sometimes I often hear Christians struggling with, uh, you know, finding their purpose. Well, I'm here to tell you that our purpose is to worship the one that has created you. Every one of us in this room has the same purpose. Do we have different gifts and talents? Sure. But those gifts and talents should be used to worship the one that created you. I'm going to close here in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22. If you remember this part of scripture, uh, God had told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to let his people go, right, so that they may serve him. That word serve could be translated as worship, right? So the same way, the same way in which the Israelites had to be set free from the, the bondage of slavery that they experienced in Egypt, well, we have to be set free from the bondage of sin so that we might worship God. That's why Jesus says, he who the Son set free is free indeed. And brothers and sisters, we are free to worship God. We are free to fulfill our purpose in this life, right? And that is to worship God. So I pray that we would all use our gifts, our talents to worship the one who has created you, the one who loves you, and the one who saves you. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you. Lord, just for this time, Lord, where we can go into your word, Lord, I thank you for the preach word. I thank you for using someone uh, as weak as me, for using a sinner as myself to proclaim your truth to fellow sinners. God, I pray, Lord, that we will have a better understanding of what it means to worship you, O God. Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.